You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We are joined today by General Michael Hayden, a retired United States Air Force four-star general and former director of the National Security Agency, principal deputy director of national intelligence, and director of the Central Intelligence Agency. He's also the author of Playing to the Edge, American Intelligence in the Age of Terror, which has been recently released. Thank you, General Hayden, for taking the time to talk to us here Thank today. you. So a lot of our audience are people who are thinking about a career in intelligence, are currently intelligence officers, or ex-intelligence officers. So. I think a lot of listeners want to know, you were a career intelligence officer. What brought you into intelligence in the first place? Like, <laughs> So I was um, coming of age in a time of universal military service. I was a university student. I went into ROTC. Uh, I was a history major. And the officers at the detachment, and frank- frankly, my own instincts, suggested that a history major might be able to transfer that discipline and some of that knowledge into work as an intelligence officer. I was right. It fit very, very nicely. And Vince, actually, as I got more and more senior, I began to more and more rely on those on those broad lessons about Western civilization, European history, Asian history, Middle Eastern history, um, as, as I got more involved in intelligence work. So it turned out to be a, a good decision. Let me ask you this question. There, there used to not be a tendency for high-level intelligence officers to write memoirs, to write books. But in the last couple years, in the frequency of years, there's been a lot more of these. Um, and, and yours uh, is certainly one of these. And I think in many ways it's great for the public to get almost an inside baseball look at some of this high-level decision-making. So what drove you to write this book now? Because you've been out of public office right. for, for a couple years. Yeah. What? Why today? So a lot of this is personal. I mean, there's a professional reason I wanted to write this, and I'll get to that in a minute, but there's a personal reason, too. Uh, I was involved at a, a pretty high torque time in American espionage, a lot of controversial programs. My name's banded about in generalized discussions about these programs. I have six grandchildren. I wanted them to have a documentary record of what it was I thought I was doing so that they would, they would have that for their grandfather in, in the future. Mm-hmm. At the professional level, The more American intelligence is discussed publicly, the more I'm convinced it's mis- or un-understood. You're preaching to the choir, sir. And and, and so I just felt, well, let me just write some plain English prose, because I I don't know that a lot of 
people who really do want to get it right, the unagended people. Uh, I don't I don't know that they have the database, the the, the texture, uh, to understand something that instinctively they want to support, but they just don't have factual background for it. So the natural next question, and this is a question that everyone who is uh, ex-intelligence, whether it's NSA, CI, or anything else, has to deal with when they write a book, is <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the Publications Review sure. Board. Uh, because there have been just horror stories in the past, even from relatively low-level CIA officers. You weren't just a director of CIA. You were the director of NSA. You were the principal deputy director of national intelligence. And you spent a career in the United States Air Force. How much of a nightmare <laughs> was it getting this through the PR? So, so what you just described <laughs> meant that my entire book, had to be reviewed by NSA, CIA, the Director of National Intelligence, and the American Department of Defense. And, and so it was a slow-moving process. Now, none of it, none, it was unpleasant in the sense that it took long and mm -hmm. it was frustrating. None of it was confrontational. Uh, none of it was argumentative, right? All people involved were trying to do the right thing. Some were able to do that with some measure of efficiency. I, I tell the story that NSA reads it in its entirety. A small group does it. The small group calls you up. They sit you at a, at a table, and they say, here are our issues. CIA farms parts of the book out to different aspects of the agency. And then you have to slowly wait until all those folks respond. And, you know, in both agencies, those people have full-time day right. work. they got a lot going on. And so it's, it, it's not surprising that it takes longer than someone from the outside like me now uh, thinks it should. But at the end of the process, everything I thought I should say is in that book. Well, in a way, it's almost like you're having a, a, a farmed out uh, group think editing session in many ways. With I mean, they're not editing you for content that is other than secret or not secret right. or other things like that. But you do, before you publish this book, the opportunity to actually give it to a lot of intelligence professionals to see what they think about it and, beforehand. And, and, and no, they have to be careful. They can't yeah. put themselves in the business of um, perfecting someone's manuscript. Right. All right? But occasionally they want to say, uh, sir, that's, that's not the right date. Right. <laughs> you know, go, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> or, or my description of the, of the Syrian nuclear reactor had a, had a technical mistake in it. Just a word. Mm -hmm. But they say that's not actually the right word, sir. All right. So, so again, it's not confrontational. Um, I mean, look, I know most of these people. Right. All right. They handle me fairly but thoroughly is how I would describe it. Let me ask you about the title of the book, uh, Playing to the Edge. Uh, you, you tell a great story, um, and it's a great analogy of, of how this title applies to the world of intelligence. Can you lay that out for our listeners? Sure. sure. The, uh, first of all, the edge refers to the limits of law and policy. All right. The metaphor is some sports venue. We're required, when circumstances demand it, to use the entire field. I mean, imagine an NFL team, just to make sure they don't go out of bounds, is told to, you know, why don't you keep the ball inside the hash marks? I'm I mean, a that's fan not of a the, successful team. I'm a fan of the Miami Dolphins, so I completely <clears throat> there, there understand you your analogy. Right, yeah. right. All right. And so, and so what is, what's required for folks like me and the folks I worked with, when the circumstances demand it, I mean, you, you don't want to be doing these things excessively or in a way that's not legitimate but when the circumstances demand it you use the full authorities that you've been given even though you know Vince and this is kind of a truism even though you know that if they succeed and you keep the country safe someone sooner or later is going to complain 
that you were too aggressive, right. that you played too close to the line, that they disagree where the line was, and you're going to have some unpleasant experience on the Hill or in, in, in public discourse. But if you don't do that, you end up protecting yourself or protecting your agency and less protecting America. I think one of the great misperceptions on the world, unfortunate misperceptions about the intelligence agency is that they set those boundaries. <laughs> yeah, I know. That, that it's not policymakers, that it's not lawmakers, that somehow the agencies are the ones saying how far they can go. And I think one thing that your book does very well is demonstrate the fact that those edges move. That, oh, in absolutely. And out. Yeah. You bet. And, and in fact, they should. That's not a flaw in the system. Because what that box should be is dependent upon the totality of circumstances you find yourself in. A classic. I started the metadata program known as 215 mm -hmm. in later years, stellar wind when I started it. I wouldn't have dreamed of starting that on September 10th. Right? But after September 11th, we were in different circumstances. And remember, the Constitution doesn't protect us against search and seizure, or certainly not against all search and seizure. It protects us against unreasonable search and seizure. And reasonableness is a product of all the factors in which we find ourselves. Let me ask you about your arrival at NSA. Because your first directorship was back in the 1990s on the Clinton administration at NSA. And I think something in your book that might shock a lot of people, seeing how NSA is considered so high-tech and omnipotent today, <laughs> was that when you arrived, it was nowhere near that level with antiquated computers. Yeah. You tell an anecdote that you asked an aide, how do I send an email to everyone? And they said you couldn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, the answer was yeah, you, you really can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and there's that paradox where NSA is considered omnipotent, but at the same time, you know, why haven't you know you're, you're uh, you can't get anything done. You can't solve any problems. You you uh, it's, yeah, it's I, damned if you do, damned if you don't. I, in many circumstances, I, I talked about that in in the, in this, uh, the chapter on kind of restructuring NSA. I said we were under assault, under assault from from but. At the same time, one, you guys are messing up, you're falling behind, you're technologically incompetent, and you're going deaf. And at the same time, you're omniscient, you're invasive, and you're reading my emails. And we actually had critics who would get those two accusations in the same paragraph. <laughs> and, and so it was very, very frustrating. Well, and you were there at a time when there's a real transitional period where NSA at that point had really been focused more on intercepting telephone calls and far less on email conversations. Yeah. And this is, again, in the 1990s when the Internet and email was really you know, becoming... Just hitting that yeah. knee in the curve, right. And we had an architecture that was designed to do one thing against a target who was moving to a different environment. Well, and, and I think this is also a time when most Americans don't know about the NSA. I mean, the joke in the 80s was there's no such, no agency. such agency. And, yeah. you know, the only real uh, experience people, quote-unquote, experience people had with the NSA was movies. Like Will Smith. State, right? <laughs> you know, and the NSA was seen as this, this horrible, you know, black helicopter-type agency. Uh, and so do you think that contributed? I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I think there's a natural transition to this question. Do you think that contributed somewhat to the backlash against NSA? when Stellar Wind was, yeah. uh, came out, and when Snowden's revelations came out, this idea that this was this super secret yeah. agency that wasn't really understood as well. I mean, CIA has been somewhat understood going back into the 1940s and 50s. NSA never had that luxury of time. Yeah, I, I think that's right. When I was director at Fort Meade at NSA, I, I was fond of saying, you know, we, we only need to be two things to be successful. We need to be powerful and we need to be secretive. And we exist inside a political culture that, frankly, only distrusts two things, 
power and secrecy. secrecy. <laughs> and, and so we actually consciously, I mean, this was part of strategic planning. As we turned the millennium, right, 99 into 2000, uh, we decided we were going to have to work hard to put a human face on the agency. And here was, here was the reason, Vince. We were going from a world in which the targets were easily identifiable, Soviet Union, and existing on their own autonomous, segregated networks. And we were going to a world in, in which the targets were a bit softer, squishier, amorphous, proliferators, terrorists, and using communications that coexisted on the same world wide web as yours and mine. And, and that created just a, a completely different challenge. And our, and our summary was simply this. If, if we did not build up a certain level of trust from both the American people and particularly from the Congress, we would not get the authorities or the resources to go do what I just described. Right. And, and so this, 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 this transparency, this building of trust, actually became mission essential. I always think back to the old NASA saying back during the beginning of the Mercury program, no bucks, no buck Rogers. That, <laughs> you know, unless you get the public support, unless you get congressional support, you're never going to get the funding and resources necessary. To do that. I mean, that's the way the American democracy is developed. Uh, and and uh, you, you do, I mean, we are talking about this issue where in the Cold War, uh, targets were easy to find but hard to kill. And now during the global war on terror, targets are hard to find but much easier to kill. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's one of the best very short and concise explanations of this transition from the Which, World War. Okay, so that's really important because, because we've gone from a world in, 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 in which intelligence was, was important, but the real challenge was really combat power. We're now in a world in which our combat power is by definition superior. The, the pass-fail aspect is can it be enabled by adequate, exquisite intelligence? And so here's the thought. If we take internal steps to reduce our ability to create that exquisite intelligence that is the moral political and operational equivalent of unilateral disarmament mm -hmm. during the prior soviet period and not a, not a whole lot of people i think appreciate that right you also distinguish uh, a real transition that takes place at NSA while you were there, and that's the idea of active versus passive SIGINT. Hmm, yeah. uh, NSA, for its entire history, had sat back using passive SIGINT as a kind of a fancy way of saying intercepting communications that are out there already, right? They're going through the ether, they're on telephone lines, they're being sent over, over wires and communications. Active SIGINT was an, something that came into play with the world of cyber, with the world that's of right. the, the ability to there. This sounded from your book that this is a significant change in NSA's mission. <laughs> and, 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 and it went unnoticed. I mean, I actually spent time in the book saying, hey, listen up. <laughs> this is a really big deal. I, I, actually, I actually make the point that we went from a world in which SIGINT was defined as something passive, putting an antenna up between A or B or behind A or B, if you're talking about a microwave, <clears throat> or getting on, a, getting, getting on a wire somewhere mm -hmm. and intercepting something that someone has chosen to put in motion SIGINT went from that world to this world in which someone didn't have to decide to move something for you to commute to the target, penetrate the network, acquire what you wanted, and pull it out. It went from passive to active. It went from midpoint to endpoint. And we 
did that simply transferring the old authorities and legal structures, the passive midpoint stuff, to the active endpoint. I think that was right. right. I mean, I really do. But then and now, I'm just amazed at the ease with which we were permitted to do that. Well, and you also have the ability now to do what we call kinetic action, where you can not only go in and steal information, but as you were very coyly talk about <laughs> Stuxnet in the book, you can go and actually yeah. affect change and actually do something active. So here's, so here's the, the, again, the, you know, new things create new circumstances. So I already told you active, passive, mm -hmm. midpoint, endpoint. In addition, <clears throat> when you penetrated a network, right, it was harder to penetrate a network, live on it for a long period of time, remain undetected, and extract information from it. It was harder to do that than it was to melt the cathode yeah. ray tubes, so to speak, right. all right? It actually, Vince, was a lesser included technological and operational case of the espionage. Mm -hmm. It was easy to do once you've created the circumstances where you could do the spying. NSA just wasn't allowed to do it. NSA doesn't and still does not have those authorities. Right. And so, so this, this created all sorts of, of, of legal and operational and, frankly, philosophical challenges. So how do we want to do this as a free people? And the, the passive and active SIGINT is kind of the sexy side of SIGINT, but one of the NSA's most important jobs is actual cyber defense and, yeah. and protecting American uh, communications. This is made especially difficult when so much key information is outside of the government. When Lockheed Martin and the F-35 can get hacked when General Atomics and the Predator get hacked. I mean, if you look at the Predator next to the Chinese pterodactyl drone, right. uh, they are a bolt for bolt. <laughs> there, there's nothing they, nothing no, even remotely no, different no, about no. Yeah. They, they are simply common engineering <laughs> solutions <laughs> to common problems. Exactly. Just like the, the B-29 that, the, <laughs> That's the, right. that landed in the Soviet Union yeah. at the end of World War II just happened to look exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, so how, how do we, I mean, you see that now with Target being hacked and... and and all well, the, the conversation, I don't want to get too political, the conversation about Clinton's private server, all right. this idea about can the government protect information? And even if they can, an OPM hack shows me perhaps they can't, but even if they can, does it matter because so much key yeah. national security information is how outside of the government? Yeah, boy, talk about dilemmas. Mm -hmm. let, let me take one aspect of what you just raised. We as a people have not yet decided what it is we want or what it is we will allow our government to do to keep us secure in the cyber domain, mm -hmm. right? And so what that means is the current director of NSA or the current commander of Cyber Command, Mike Rogers, up at Fort Meade, talk about playing to the edge, he's got first-round draft picks and they're not only not on the field, they're not even suited up because he doesn't have the rules from the league office right. yet, all right? And, and, and so, and so in, a, in a strange way, I actually think an awful lot of American cyber stuff is, is not just being conducted in the private sector, as you suggest. It's going to have to be defended by the private sector. This, this is an aspect of American life where I actually think the private sector is going to be required to do a lot more for security than it's been required to do in physical space. Try this since the closing of the American frontier in 1880. Wow, okay. Okay, which then, Vince, fast forward to Apple mm -hmm. and FBI, if you accept in any way my premise that, you know, we're going to have to really kind of rely on the private sector here for most of this, because most of it's out there, and oh, by the way, they're pretty agile, not bad at this. You'd think more than twice before you'd ask Apple to degrade 
an encryption system right. on which we're all going to rely. And that creates the kind of modern problems that we're seeing. Uh, what's a, and that's just an aside to what you just said. I've actually talked to people on both extreme sides of the political spectrum, on the far left and the far right about this concept, and they all have the same thing that you just said, that there, there's no rules yet. Right. That, that, and, and that's problematic when you have a Congress made up of people who did not grow up or did not really <laughs> understand, and they're trying to make rules on this. And I think there are only a couple people now in Congress that have any kind of technical background to be making the laws on this. So uh, we may not have a solution to this. Anytime, no, and, so. and, and, and um, actually, there, there's a, a parallel track inside the executive branch, all right? Uh, and particularly the more senior you get, cabinet level, sub-cabinet level mm -hmm. officers. This is, and look, uh, I'm, look I, I'm born in 1945, for God's sake. I am a digital immigrant. I will speak with an accent in this universe mm -hmm. for my entire life. My grandchildren probably di digital natives, all right? But it's gonna be a while before they're in government. Yeah. And, and so we're gonna have to go through this evolution. It really reminds me a lot, I, I, my field is nuclear weapons, and, I, and uh, in the 1940s and 50s, the, the leadership of the United States Air Force, which was dealing with nuclear strategy, was made up of generals who went to school back in the 19-teens or 1920s, and they didn't understand nuclear physics. And so a lot of these think tanks like RAND and others were brought in because you had all these kids right. who grew up learning physics in college and, and understood it and the, get the Bernard Brodies of the world because they're the only ones that truly understood this. And it wasn't the four-star general. It wasn't Curtis LeMay because he just did not grow up during that generation. I think cyber is going to be very similar to where a lot of the policymakers need to start listening to this younger generation because they just don't understand it themselves. Let, let me double down on your mm -hmm. premise. We're looking for Herman Kahn. We're, we're, we're looking for the, for, for, the, for the brilliant mind who creates the on-thermonuclear war for the cyber domain. We haven't found him yet. Let me ask you one last key question that I get asked all the time, so I, I want to be able to steal your answer a little bit. <laughs> um, it's a key question about, about cyber and terrorism, and it's really kind of the double-edged sword of Terrorists are stupid, and they provide us with a, a lot of wonderful open source information online and social media, on Twitter, on Facebook. Uh, some of the people going off to join ISIS are reporting on their Facebook page when they're returning to some of these European countries, and so we're there to pick them up and arrest them. We're getting a lot of great geospatial intelligence from people's Twitter accounts. Do you want to leave those open and up? Uh, to keep gathering this important open source information, or do we want to prevent these these websites from being used to recruit new terrorists? Uh, because like Inspire Magazine and other things are so effective at recruiting Westerners, it's one of these damned if you do, damned if you don't situations yeah. again. Where what is more valuable, preventing recruitment or or keeping this valuable source of information? Yeah, it's not a new problem. I mean, you, you had this with the older forms of signals intelligence too. Use it, you put it at risk, and so on. Um, I understand why we have done what we have done to date, which is fundamentally emphasizing the intelligence, espionage, learning about the enemy aspects, using our ability to watch them in the cyber domain to actually create effects in physical space. In other words, espionage trumping operations. I actually think we're seeing a shift in that now. You, you've had the Secretary of Defense, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, talk about beginning to pull the cyber trigger on ISIS. Mm -hmm. I actually think that's a good idea. All right, I, I think I think we may have conceded this space to them a little too long, a little too much. You know, uh, one of one of the pushbacks on this is, oh, it's got to be whack-a-mole. You know, okay, 
let's go wax some moles. Yeah. All right. Let's go see what happens. Because even with social media, when you when you take down one particular activity and it gets resurrected, it's got to be rebuilt. You know, he's got to you got to build the following again and so on. And so, I suspect that's part of what's happening now. Right. And 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 I thought, again, I'm out of government. I'm not getting the briefings, but my instincts are, yeah, let's try it for a while. Well, and you also talk about your book about a conversation that you had with somebody on the operations side, somebody about the counterterrorism side, where. Intelligence can lead to targets, certainly, but also operations can lead to more intelligence. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is my conversation with the commander of SOCOM. Good friend, Charlie Holland. We're having dinner. We're in the war four or five months. Charlie, who I I know very well from Air Force days, we're having dinner at his house at Tampa, and he's practically pounding the dinner table saying, Mike, I need actionable intelligence, actionable intelligence, actionable intelligence. I said, Charlie, Charlie, let me give you another way of thinking about this. You give me a little action, I'll give you a lot more intelligence with the thought being that tickling the enemy, pressing the enemy, making the enemy move, making the enemy communicate, creates great opportunities for intelligence. And so, and this actually, this actually became fairly doctrinally prevalent, is that we began to use operations, not just in their own right, but to actually stimulate the enemy so that intelligence could be created. So you end up, a couple of years later, with Stan McChrystal mm-hmm. over over in Iraq, uh, doing multiple raids per night, fed, you know, raids two and three were fed by the intelligence from raid one. Raid four was fed by the intelligence from two and I mean it. Right. It, it had this very virtuous cycle. That so we start whacking some moles, maybe some information. I, I, well, actually, that's yeah. the thought I had. Yeah. And, and and then let's just let's, let's just up the cost of doing business. Right. Let me, let me shift focus to uh, a topic that we, again, get a lot of questions about. It's actually one uh, that we are, we are fully uh, invested in now, particularly because some of the uh, information has come out lately, and this is Iraqi WMD. Um, what, what seems a surprise to a lot of people, and I had a recent conversation uh, with um, Mark Lowenthal about this, who was certainly a and big Mark part of the involved. analysis. Yeah. Uh, what seems to surprise many people when I talk to them about this is that this analysis of this intelligence failure, and I'm, you can't see I'm putting air quotes around it, <laughs> which in the end it certainly was. What's surprising is the fact that the conclusion to the evidence is pretty much right on, except that it was entirely wrong. Right. It's kind of this weird paradox. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned in the book that there's actually more intelligence, more evidence that Iraq had WMDs than there was that Osama bin Laden was in Abbottabad. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's my quoting Mike Morrell, the deputy director of, uh, of CIA at the time, trying to explain to President Obama why the agency's estimates as to whether or not he was there were had such a wide range. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Mike tells a longer story, but the punchline, Vince, based upon what you just said was, um, Mr. President, it's all circumstantial, but I'm pretty confident he was there. But I need to tell you, we had more circumstantial evidence that Saddam Hussein had, nuclear, or had a nuclear yeah. program than we have that this man is at this compound. Well, and again, I need to talk about in the book that there's uh, – if you almost and Lowenthal says this too that if you had to do it again today, not knowing the outcome, of course, yeah, that you would have said, yeah. I mean, the evidence is pointing to the fact that there is. Here's a, what I would have changed, yeah. and, and this this is what I say. I actually teach this in my class. I actually put the key judgments of the NIE up there, and Peter today talked talked about our being the most transparent intelligence community on earth. He's absolutely right. You don't get to read the key judgments of national intelligence estimates right. on the web in other countries. So I throw. Throw the, the key judgments up from the 2002 NIE on Iraq. 
And I tell the students, I'm not so much troubled, I am, but I'm not so much troubled by the fact that we were wrong. There is no reflection in our language as to our confidence levels in our conclusions. Mm -hmm. And so if you're the casual reader, and that's what everyone was, okay, you come away from those conclusions with a sense of confidence greater than the people who wrote the conclusions had when they wrote the conclusions. There's no hint of ambiguity or, or doubt. Uh, we fixed that. It was, it, that's a question of tradecraft. Right. All right. Mark had a role in that. Uh, so did Jamie Missick, who was the head of analysis at the time. And the agency went to school. And we now, even at the expense of making our prose a bit clumsy, we now inject in any of these kind of key judgments. We assess with medium confidence that... Right. Yeah, this is a little chronologically out of order, and I'll jump back to the ODNI in a second. But I wanted to actually bring up this this idea about the Iranian bomb program and when you were uh, advising the president on there. I think this is, in your book, is one of the best primers on the dissemination of intelligence information. That's really this idea of high confidence versus medium confidence or low confidence. And the way you lay it out in the book about we have high confidence about this, we're right. medium confidence, low I mean, yeah. and that to me... Uh, it, it was very illuminating. I mean, I, I knew the background, but the way you lay it out, I think yeah. for, for someone that doesn't have the understanding or hasn't been in the community, it's a very good way to, un, to get what's going on. No, it, it is. And, and that's actually part of what I try to achieve throughout the book. I mean, everyone knows about Iraq WMD. Well, good. Let me tell you about the meeting where we all raised our right hand and said we support the NIE. Let me let me tell mm -hmm. you what that was what that was like, and then the lessons learned afterwards, and 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 then you fast forward to to the Iranian program, and and how um, that estimate was written in, with, within a different style and so on, and so, um, yeah, we're we're kind of a learning organization. This is hard work, and and we we take these lessons seriously. You are also. Uh uh, knee deep in a, another interesting transition and this is the startup of the office of D director of national intelligence and i think people will also be surprised when they read about the conditions that you had at the very <laughs> beginning with butcher papers on the walls yeah. and a lot of the conversation was about what color should the dni shield be what shade of blue actually yeah. was the debate <laughs> and, and and i think the the very very tricky issue of the dni DCIA relationship and for the first time it's the director of CIA and not the director of central intelligence yeah. and uh, how that changed decades of precedent shifting it from the head of the CIA was the head of the intelligence community and now you have an entirely different post and John Rango Ponte was not an intelligence professional no. No. and and how did that I mean you were you were the principal deputy director you got the bird's eye view of how this went down you talk a little bit about that tension and how that, that came to be. Yeah, so, God, where to start? <laughs> uh, number one, I wouldn't have done it. All right? Let's just put all the cards yeah. face up on the table. I think it was based on a misdiagnosis. Any complex organization has a challenge between autonomy of action for the parts and unity of effort for the whole. All right? That's a college faculty. That's the museum. You have that challenge. How do you balance those things, both of which you want? But they're, they're, somewhat, they're somewhat counterpointed in, in real life. The, the analysis was that we had too much autonomy uh, for the parts and not enough unity of effort. I'm not so sure that was true. Mm -hmm. all right? But then after, after the Congress concluded and the 9-11 Commission concluded that was the case, they went about trying to fix it. And one of the 
key principles of the fix was that the head of the community would not be the head of the Central Intelligence Agency. And Vince, I got to tell you, the glue that held us together prior to the Intelligence Reform Act was the DCI, was the fact that this, so here's an example. So George Tenet would call me routinely at, at NSA, which should be re very revealing about autonomy of action mm -hmm. and unity of effort, all right? He'd call me all the time. And he'd, he'd, he would begin with, hey, Mike, my guys were just in here, so on and so forth, and I want you to do that. The antecedent of my guys was always CIA, was not his small community management staff, right. all right? And, and so the center was strengthened. What center we had was powerful because the guy running the community also ran the, bada bing, central right. intelligence agency. And then the first fix they had because our, our center wasn't strong enough was whatever it is this DNI might be, he is not going to run CIA. <laughs> so, so we, oh, <laughs> oh, Bubba, you better put a lot of bricks in his rucksack then right. through, through legislation. And, and, I, and I think, frankly, they did not put enough bricks in his rucksack. And so I opposed doing this. I think it was imperfectly done. I also opposed trying to undo it. Okay? You can make this structure work, Vince, if you've got the right people in a couple of jobs. Right. Well, it seems like it's gotten stronger over the year. I mean, James Clapper seems to be a fairly strong. Well, the DNI. first thing you got with Jim is he's been there a while. Yeah. Look, look, look at the history of this thing. There's a lot of turbulence in that job. Negra Pony was a great choice. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I write in the book that, um, so we're all figuring out who's going to be the DNI. And, and I'd actually thought before I knew who was going to be the DNI that when the president was having the press op and he was walking on stage with the new director of national intelligence, most of America wasn't saying, well, who's that guy with George Bush? That that, that guy was somebody who had his own gravitas. Mm -hmm. John Negroponte had that gravitas. Mm -hmm. So he's actually, even though he was not an intel guy, right. he was a very good choice. But he's there, what, 24 months? Right. And, and Mike Rogers, or uh, I'm sorry, Mike McConnell for a couple of years. And, 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 and then you got Denny Blair who gets sideways with the white, I mean, that's an awful lot of turbulence for what essentially is a startup. Right. We'll be right back after this. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero-trust-ai. Let, let, me, let me shift to your time as CIA director, because there's certainly some key issues that we, we need to pay attention to here. 
Uh, and one is a program that you inherited, that you didn't start there, and that is uh, the Rendition and Enhanced Interrogation Program. Uh, and they're actually two different programs, but you know a lot of people put them together. Uh, and this is certainly a program that uh, has some controversy because of things like waterboarding and sleep deprivation. Uh, you talk about it in the book as the need to put someone in the zone of cooperation. Right. Uh, and so that standard interrogation techniques could then be used after the fact. One thing I found interesting, and this is something that I've believed for a long time, and that actually we're on opposite ends of the spectrum here when it comes to enhanced interrogation. Uh, but I appreciate your analysis, and I th- let me see if I'm getting it right, mm-hmm. of the people who are asking the question, did it work or does it work, or asking the wrong question, or they're, they're hypocritical to some degree. The people who are against it, and, and this is what I am against it for, because we don't think it's what our country should be doing, regardless if it works or yep. not. Uh, you seem to have more respect for that line. Again, I do. I'm putting words in your mouth. No, no, but... no. I, I write it in the book. No. I said, look, <clears throat> the sentence we normally get is, I don't want you guys doing that, and it didn't work anyway. All right. That's, that, that's a freebie. That, that, that costs nothing. Mm-hmm. All right. The, the sentence that requires heroism is, I don't care whether it worked or not. I don't want you doing it. That one I respect. That one actually, I can, you know, we may be on different branches, but we're coming out of the same same trunk. Right. Okay? All right. But but the one that wants to have it both ways, I don't want you doing it and it doesn't work. Right. All right. Uh, we, we, I guess I would say we lose respect for that because in our view, and I'm, I'm trying to be very careful with my words, mm-hmm. in our view, in the agency's view, that is inconsistent with our life experience. All right? In the agency's view, no, it actually did work. We actually got stuff that we would not otherwise have gotten. And I think you make a really interesting point in the book that it became so controversial that it ended up just being easier to kill the guy than to capture him. Well, I mean, that's where we've ended up. I, 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 so the, the detention thing becomes controversial. The interrogation thing becomes controversial. And so what's our current... It's, I actually get this question. Well, what, General, I've lost the bubble. What's our current interrogation policy? And I said, well, our current interrogation policy is don't detain anyone. <laughs> and therefore, you don't have to answer the question. What's our current interrogation policy? Look, if I had John Brennan here, the current director, if, if, I, if I had people not in the White House and the NSC staff, and, and I would repeat what you just said, we just seem to kill them rather than capture them. They, they, they would rend their garments. They would mm-hmm. object. They would pound the table between us. That is not true. That is, we, we try to capture in all possible circumstances. But you're right, Vince. All right? We have made it so, so politically dangerous and so legally difficult to detain that the bureaucracy, being a bureaucracy, responding to the kinds of stimuli that bureaucracies respond to, opts to kill rather than capture. Now, no, by the way, if John were here and he objected to that, I would, I would simply say, well, show me the examples. Right. And you've made a very interesting uh, comment, and you've done it several times. I actually saw it both when you uh, were interviewed for the Spy Masters, the very exceptional <laughs> Showtime documentary. <laughs> very, um, very well done. And you've said this several times on the press about what happens if the next president or any president orders a waterboarding. Yeah. So I don't want to – you tell it so much sure. better. But I so think, I, I, yeah. I've, I'm on record saying if, if, if some future president wants someone to be waterboarded, he better bring his own bucket because the agency is not going to do it. Now, Vince, very quickly and very carefully, that is not the agency adjusting its judgment on what it did earlier. It is not the agency rejecting its past. It's not the agency going through one of those self-accusation sessions. 
it has nothing to do with what did or didn't work in the years immediately following 9-11. What it has to do is what happened in the years following 2009. Mm -hmm. And, and here's, here's the backstory on that. When you go to an agency officer and you ask him or her to conduct a covert action, which this was right. one, but there were many others, when you go to that officer, he gets to ask you three or four questions. He gets to say, boss, you, you okay with this? Is this gonna work? Are you on board? In other words, is this operationally relevant? You know, yeah, it's a, good, it's a good one. Is the president authorizing it? Yeah, he has. You guys talked to the AG, right? The attorney general's in on this. He says this is lawful, right? Yeah. You brief the Hill, right? You brief the Hill? Yeah. If he gets four yeses, the director says it's operationally useful, the president's authorized it, Congress has been briefed, and the Department of Justice says it's lawful, that case officer has every right to believe that he has a social contract with the American nation in perpetuity that that nation has his back on this activity. And what happened after 2009, is gonna sound more political than some of the other things That's we've fine. talked about, but what happened after 2009 is, is that the president not only stopped what was going on before, fully his right, that's what we expect a president to do, give us guidance. Mm -hmm. But then allowed his attorney general to push documents out into the public domain that betrayed the covert action of the predecessor administration and reopened investigations against these officers that had been closed by career prosecutors years earlier. That was seen to be a breach of faith. And hence my conclusion, Somebody want to water waterboard in the future? Mm -hmm. He's going to have to do it himself. This agency will not do it. Well, in many respects, and, and again, politically, we're on the other side of the aisle. But I can totally see your analogy in this case of CIA was told during the Bush administration that the lines of the the playing field were at a certain position, and then when the Obama administration came in, the lines were changed. But That's your, fine. your That's players fine. from back from the Bush administration were being judged with the new lines and not right. the ones that they thought they were operating under. Well, again, the current administration would, have, would object to that. They would say that's right. not true. But the practical effect is precisely what you just described. And these officers were once again pulled through an, an additional knot hole. Now, they came out the other end just fine. But, you know, let me just kind of confide in your listeners. Three years of appearing before a grand jury is a very, very unhappy term in your life inexpensive Very, I mean, it I mean, is it is and these are not people these are gs 12s and 13s yeah. and yeah not making a ton of money so we've been talking about covert action i think that a lot of uh the audience out there if they've seen any spy movies or <laughs> any books about espionage covert action may be all they know about or all they think about when in reality that's a, such a small part of what intelligence agencies actually do and i think as you mentioned in the book the problem is many policymakers also think that covert action is this magic bullet, right. this solution to all their problems. Uh, can you talk a little bit about when you were CIA director, because the CIA, of course, is the agency in charge of covert action, that's the right. only one that's tasked only with doing it. Only one that's allowed to do it right now. How much did that, how much was that a part of your job as CIA yeah. director? It was a part of my job, actually it was a large part of my job because the repercussions from it were, were always threatening to be big and just by the nature of covert action, they always seemed imminent. <laughs> um, and so although it was a smaller slice of the agency's overall activity, it took a bigger slice of the director's brain, simply because of all the things that, that could go wrong. 
Uh, one of the things I, I don't think many people understand is not only does the agency not really push for a lot of covert actions, it actually pushes back because it knows how difficult these things truly are. And as you suggest, policymakers, and they run out of runway for diplomacy or economic measures or even overt military measures, then turn to the corner of the table in the suit room and say, hey, what can you guys do? And of course, we dutifully go and figure out what might be possible. Uh, Steve Kappas, who was my deputy, and I had a running joke. We would trade off the White House meetings. He'd go to some, I'd go to some. And before either of us left to go downtown, we, our offices were separated only by a wall and, and one door. So we'd open the door, poke our head into the other office, at which point the person who was staying would invariably say, did you remember to bring the pills? And, and the, the thought, the standing joke between us, these were appetite suppressant pills <laughs> for covert action, which we were to distribute to all the members of the NSC before the meeting. Well, I think a lot of people don't understand that it's, it's more about, or it's not just as much the risk that could potentially go wrong with the covert action itself. There's also the concern about long-term blowback, about the possibility that a covert action may be successful short-term, we oh, may yeah. come back to haunt us you 20, mean like, 30 years. like going around trying to count stingers <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure you know iran in 53 is another good you yeah. know these are where it sounds like a good idea at the time and then but no one's there really are thinking, always second you know. and third order effects and i'll you know that's not uh, on the surface a prima facie case for never doing this mm -hmm. but but it is it is reason to pause and make sure you're wh whoever's making that final decision is buying into the second and third order, inevitable second and third order effects. You write in your book also that your top priorities as CIA director were terrorism, Iran, and then basically everything else. Yeah. Um, would you, if you look back, and I, I guess writing this book you did look back a little bit, but now knowing what you know about the resurgence of Russia, about how China now is kind of throwing their weight around in the South China Sea, would you argue that perhaps the intelligence community as a whole, maybe even policymakers in Washington, took their eye away from the traditional great power sure. uh, dynamic. So, yeah, so here's, here's what, what I say. Uh, because of the demands of war, all right, and this is nobody doing a bad thing, and it's certainly not me criticizing anyone else because I did what I'm going to describe for, mm -hmm. for you. <clears throat> because of the demands of war, an awful lot of what we call analysis in today's intelligence community is really targeting. It's targeting for action, it's targeting for collection, it's targeting to make sure somebody doesn't get on an airplane, it's disambiguation of data. It's going from the broad to the incredibly accurate but incredibly specific mm -hmm. data point. Um, that's at the expense of other stuff. You, you, you can't put as much energy as we've put into that without having a cost somewhere else. I was out of government. Dave Petraeus was the nominee to be the DCIA. Dave and Holly had come to the House to chat. Dave was talking to all living former directors. We did 30 or 40 minutes at the kitchen table with coffee and co coffee cake and Dave taking notes. Mm -hmm. And we're walking out, and I do that classic Washington pull-aside as Janine and Holly walk to the front door. I pull Dave aside and say, Dave, one more thing. CIAs never look more like OSS than it does right now. And that's a kind of a good thing. It's made America a lot more safe than it otherwise would be. But, Dave, it's not. It's right. not OSS. And you're going to have to struggle the way I had to struggle 
every day, way Leon, I'm sure, had to struggle every day, to remind yourself and remind the agency that it's got this broader function, right. that it's got to have this, this wider field of view. And, and I frankly think that our unarguable tactical present tense operational successes have actually imposed a cost in our broader strategic long-term operations. Right, I mean, you even heard John Brennan talking about the need to go back to humans, <coughs> traditional collection, what the CIA was created to do. I mean, you even write in the book, I'm talking about the case study of the nation of Georgia in 2008. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and it was interesting that the anecdote you tell about how your officers on the ground basically just drove north so they yeah. ran into Russian forces and then called in the GPS coordinates. Yeah, and that was I your- mean, look, it, so, so I, I get a phone call from Steve Hadley. And he had just gotten a phone call from Misha um, Saakashvili, the president, mm-hmm. in Tbilisi. Misha was a little, little nervous no. at this point. <laughs> and in essence, Steve called me and said, hey, look, Misha thinks they're coming down to Tbilisi. How far are they going? I, you know, I, I didn't quite say, I don't know, but I'll ask around. But mm-hmm. <laughs> that's fundamentally the response I was going to give him. I said, I'd call him back. And I walked to my outer office fence, and I turned to Mary and Mary Jane, who are my executive assistants, and I said, get my Georgia people up here right away. And they started doing the Rolodex and dialing the phone. And I turned to Larry Pfeiffer, my chief of staff, and said, only half in jest. We got Georgia people, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, now, it turns out we did. And they, they, they were actually quite good, right? But, but, but as director, I hadn't had much interaction right. with them. All right, and, and so that's, that's what I'm trying to suggest. Now, you're talking about going north here, all right? And so now we're, we're, we're trying to get very accurate intelligence we can pass on to our national command authorities, frankly, because they're in intense dialogue with a good friend, Saakashvili. Mm-hmm. And um, the American SIGINT enterprise is not geared to follow this target anymore. This target, we had spent half a century right. mastering our ability to even track it had atrophied as we moved through the peace dividend to Al-Qaeda, to Afghanistan, to Iraq. And so since I lost the ability to electronically determine where the forward edge of the battle area was, I had to physically determine it. And it's not in jest, Mm -hmm. what you said. I told, I brought CIA case officers into Tbilisi from, from around that part of the world from the Caucasus, brought them in, put them in soft-skinned vehicles, gave them a phone and a GPS device, told them to drive north, and when they saw a T-80, stop, <laughs> take a reading, and phone it in. And then leave as quickly <clears throat> as they possibly right. can. Right. right. Now, you know, that sounds like I'm making a joke. I'm not. Right. That's what we did. Well, one of the major themes that we, we want to talk about here, and you're the perfect person to talk to about this, is this constant pressure constant tension balance that's been around since the very beginning of the country and that's this idea of an open democracy a democracy by the people and for the people and of the people versus the secrecy necessary to pull off effective intelligence operations this is something that you you were knee-deep in when you were NSA director uh, developing systems that uh, to this to the present day are somewhat controversial this is the trailblazer versus thin thread argument um, and, and this this has become controversial because of the, some call them whistleblowers, others call them leakers, um, including people like Thomas Drake, 
who have uh, spoken out against this program. And then, of course, there's Stellar Wind, uh, which you've talked very openly about. You, you're very proud of this, this particular program. How, for those who call it warrantless wiretapping, let, let's set that straight. <laughs> As opposed to unwarranted, right. which, is, which, okay, it could be worse. <laughs> yeah, it could be worse. That's true. Um, and you talk about a paradox about this. The idea, and I think this is something ever-present in American society, that if the programs keep America safe and keep America safe for a time period, people are more likely to criticize government Absolutely. intrusions of their privacy because they feel safe. Absolutely. It's, it's, I, it's, it's an iron logic in yeah. our political culture. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, I mean, anyone who remembers 9-11, and, and it's getting to the point where more and more people are, were young at the time, it's, it's almost, you know, like, where were you when the wall fell? I was negative five years old <laughs> for a lot of the students I used to teach. Um, but anyone who remembers 9-11 on 9-12, we were like, do everything that you need to do. That's there right. was no pushback. Very few people were saying, don't do anything about it. And now we've been safe for the, you know, certainly not another 9-11 for 15 years. Uh do you see i'm not saying do we need another attack but how do we avoid getting another attack and at the same time so, make sure we're conscious about so this? what you describe is inevitable all right within our political culture it really is that that does not however remove my right and privilege to complain about it yeah all right um and so it is a condition to be managed fence it is not a problem that we can solve and you can manage the condition we talked earlier earlier today with Judge Webster, who, who brought up the whole question of trust, mm -hmm. that the trust the people can have in even in their secret espionage services. Now, that's harder to build uh, than it is for the National Geographic Society or other institutions that can be quite transparent right. in, in terms of what it is they do. And frankly, whose work is not nearly as controversial inherently as the work of espionage agencies always is. Right? That's hard, mm -hmm. and it's going to be always imperfect. That then requires people in, in the kinds of positions I had to take this function, this factor, this challenge on as something they personally have to deal with. I had a rule I tried to apply to myself when I was director of both agencies. Do only those things only you can do. Okay? I got a lot of people who could do SIGINT. I got a lot of people who can do UMINT. Mm -hmm. got a lot of people who do analysis. Frankly, I had a bunch of people who could brief the president. Only I could be the director of CIA having lunch in the cafeteria with the workforce. Only I could be the director of CIA at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York on the anniversary of 9-11, mm -hmm. talking about renditions, detentions, and interrogations. And so it's, it's something that the, the very senior leadership simply has to take on as, what's the right word? It's, it's part of their portfolio, right. and they need they need they need to embrace it with, with some enthusiasm. This 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 can't be something that they accept only reluctantly. A big challenge to secrecy in the United States is the media, the press. Um, you you've had several run-ins. Uh, let's not use that word. You've had a relationship with the press. And I've yeah. talked to several journalists here on SpyCast, people that cover intelligence and national security. And the ones are very cognizant of the need to maintain security that the yeah. press can only go so yeah. far. There is obviously a line. We talk about balance a lot. Where do you think that line is? I mean, are, are things overclassified? Is that not a decision that anyone should make except for the government? Where, where should the press push? And where should they 
respect yeah. the needs of secrecy. Sure. And again, a condition to be managed, not a problem to be yeah. solved. And in fact, attention built into our system and frankly, a useful, a creative tension. Now, it doesn't mean I give up my role in this tension. Otherwise, there's no tension. <laughs> okay. And so, and so part of my role in this is actually push back, mm -hmm. knowing full well that I depend on a free press as much as anyone else does. And so I would begin when, when my public affairs officer would come running down the hall with her, his or her hair on fire about, oh, my God, they're going to publish this story. You, you big guy, need to call the publisher or the editor. And I would. I would always begin the conversation with, first, thank you for taking my call. And it's really interesting, they always took the call, which actually should make a lot of Americans feel pretty good. Mm -hmm. And so they take the call. Thank you for taking my call. I want to bring something up to you. Look, I know we both have a role to play in defending American security and American liberty. But I fear that the way you're about to perform your role is going to make it harder for me to do mine. So can we talk? Mm -hmm. And we had conversations. Most of the time, my conversations had effect. Not all. Most of the time, they had effect. Now, that effect is not limited to just scotching the story. It may be delaying the story. Right. Most often, it means modifying the story. Well, it'll nuance things like saying intelligence versus intercepts. Right. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. Kind of, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly one, one classic point. And yeah. actually, a pretty good reporter uh, was reading something to us that they wanted to go with. And it says, based on intercepts, comma, and we said, could you just say based on intelligence reports? And his response, Vince, was, you're kidding. I go, no, yeah. it's a big deal. Yeah. Said, oh, sure, no problem. And he did. And, and so there is benefit in having this dialogue. I don't know if many of your listeners know, but at both NSA and CIA, I made it a matter of habit to have routine dinners at my house for members of the press. Hmm. All right? And, and the, the, the kind of underlying philosophy, talk to these people when they're not accusing you of something. Right. All right? Get them in and, and just, just, number one, prove that you're actually fairly human, fair, fair, fairly convivial, and really do enjoy talking about these things at an adult level. And so we would gather, we would gather, generally the mix was a couple of print guys, a, a video guy, and kind of mixing up the short form, long form kind, kind of writers. Mm -hmm. So we'd have a, a, a Brett Baer and a Joe Klein and a James Bamford and a Steve Inskeep and their spouses at the same table. Right. And, you know, we'd sit down there and um, say, well, you, you all probably don't have much of a chance to have these kinds of conversations, so uh, let's chat. Right. What, what, do you, what kind of things are on your mind? And it, that didn't stop all bad stories. It didn't give us a veto over stories we felt compromised national security, but it certainly got us an audience when we, when we made the phone calls. When it humanized the oh, agencies, yeah. right? I think that yeah. makes now, a big difference. Now, the danger is, the danger is that... Um, well, I'll give you a very concrete one. Um, when Stellar Wind became public, actually the terrorist surveillance program, which just a slice of Stellar Wind became public, some of the journalists who had come to the house for dinner felt we had betrayed them. Hmm. Betray may be too strong a word, but you, you, you understand the right. meaning. And uh, <clears throat> we, I, we were of clear conscience. No, we, we hadn't at all. Yeah. And we were quite willing to talk with them. But, you know, it's... They have an institutional perspective that they should have, and so should we. Right. So we're in the middle of an election campaign, and I'm not going to make you weigh in on any one candidate versus the other without getting political in either direction. I love in your book 
when you talk about the aw shit moments. <laughs> and yeah. we're allowed to say that. We're PG-13 here. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain? Because you have a lot of people who promise things. And I think historically, I think back to the 1960 election when you were talking mm-hmm. about this, the idea that John Kennedy is talking about the missile gap and the bomber gap. And Nixon knew that this was nonsense. It's not true. But yeah. he couldn't say anything about it. And Kennedy didn't know. Yeah. Until he was finally briefed on it. And that's kind of what you're talking about yeah. here, where these candidates say stuff without knowing anything. And then when you finally get this, oh, shit, I shouldn't have said that moment. Yeah. So so what happens, and this this is this is not, I guess it is political, but it, but it is bipartisan. Right. All right? It, this is not because a Republican is going to become president or a Democrat is going to become president. It's just somebody new is going to become president. And, and so as we had a we had a team in Phoenix and in Chicago on election night. Wednesday morning, someone was going to get the president's daily brief. And we were just waiting for Ohio to tell us yeah. <laughs> which, which one was. And it was Senator Obama, not Senator McCain. So the team in Phoenix just quietly packed up and went home. Uh, the team in Chicago, good morning, Mr. President-elect. I'm here with your briefing. And at that point, the permanent government, folks, folks like me, begin to try and, and, and quite blatantly influence, shape the thinking. Right. Of, of the incoming team because, frankly, we think we've got it right. Otherwise, we wouldn't think it. And so we want to have this rich dialogue. We, we know full well elections matter, and we're going to get direction from the new president, new vice president, and the new team. Right? But we do want to take advantage of that interregnum between early November and late January where we get to say, well, look, here's how we're looking at the Iranian thing. Here's how we're looking at fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Right? And I, I say it in the book, and it's, we actually use this phrase, and it's a bit crude, but fundamentally it was to create, as you describe, as many, oh, shit, yeah. moments as possible, as in, oh, shit, I wish I hadn't said that. At, what was that, Schenectady? Yeah. <laughs> okay. it, in, in which you, you begin to, to take the candidate and, and begin to impose on the candidate what you think is right. a more accurate worldview than he or she may have had previously. I, I do say in the book, um, the objective here is to impose upon the president and vice president-elect and his or her team the reality that national security looks different from the Oval Office than it does from a hotel room in Iowa. Right. Well, and, and you've done this somewhat twice because you were the NSA director when George <coughs> W. Bush became president, yep. and of course the CIA director during the transition to Barack Obama. What is in a general sense? What is the learning curve for a new president? Because de- yeah, 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 it depends on the it, it depends yeah. on the new president. All right, a um, to be perfectly candid, and I, I kind of make a reference to this in the book, and so we're getting ready to brief Senator McCain and Senator Obama. Um, I think Senator McCain would have been the harder case, and 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 not because he wasn't knowledgeable. In fact, it was because he was right, and he had developed some pretty firm views, whereas Senator Obama with less experience, my instincts were he'd actually might 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 be a, a little more, well, huh, I hadn't thought of it that way before. He may have known what he didn't know <clears throat> right. to a degree. Right. Yeah. And so, and so you, I mean, by the way, I mean, you have to be deeply respectful. You know, Ohio matters. I right. Mean, when, you, when, you get, when you get enough electoral votes, you, you represented the sovereignty of the American people. Right. And, and, and so, I mean, this is not our trying to manipulate at all. We're trying to perform our function. Well, I mean, because, you know, Barack Obama and George Bush before him and everybody going back, 
and, and I guess the last person you could say was George H.W. Bush because he was vice president yeah. before he became president. None of them were cleared up to the highest levels. No, before. no. Actually, it was kind of cute. It's not my experience. This is George Tenet's. All right, put a, put a stake in Georgia's heart for a short period of time. They're, um, they're briefing President-elect Bush, W, mm -hmm. 43. And uh, after we got over the long count, which really got in the way of this transition I'm, yeah. I'm telling you about, it. it made it much, much more difficult and, frankly, penalized the new administration in actually hitting the ground with any kind of pace mm -hmm. because they couldn't start. Just because to start would have been politically presumptive, right. which was really bad. Um, George tells the story about himself that after they began to give the PDB to President-elect Bush, uh, after a certain period of time and a certain number of briefings, he blurted it out to his briefer, well, I guess I'll really get the really good stuff after I get in office, <laughs> <laughs> which was, oh, that hurts. <laughs> like, sorry, Mr. President, it's, it's not like the movies. So I, I, I wanted to end with Snowden because I think that Certainly, our, our listeners are interested in your, your, your perspective on this. Voldemort, he who shall not be named. <laughs> you discuss in your book uh, that metadata from phone calls, like the Stellar Wind program, are not particularly intrusive to American policy, uh, privacy. The idea right. is one, of the, one part of the phone call has to be from outside the country. No, not for the metadata. Not for, for, no, so for the, the, the metadata is, is, is actually overwhelmingly domestic to domestic. Okay. Cards face up. Well, yeah. and, well, and I was going to ask you about the <clears throat> metadata can, can't tell us a lot on a phone call, but for emails that actually in Internet usage, metadata can tell us a decent amount. It's a bit more. Yeah. 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 And, uh, so my question really on Snowden in this case is uh, I've been pretty open with our listeners. If they know anything about me, they know I'm slightly left of center. Um, but when I'm asked the question, do I think Snowden is a traitor or a hero? I say yes, <laughs> uh, because I, I do see nuance. I, 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 I see nuance in the fact that. Snowden should not have given away the secrets of legitimate foreign intelligence operations. Vince, he didn't see nuance. Yeah, that's and, that, the, and that's, that's, the, the, and that's the great tragedy. Yeah. Does he, however, force this conversation? I, it, look, I'm on record yeah. of saying that, that Edward Snowden's revelations accelerated a necessary conversation in the United States. I also add very quickly that he dis is the way this information was revealed distorted that conversation very badly. And then, oh yeah, by the way, the other 98% of the right. stuff he revealed had nothing to do with civil liberties or privacy. What, what do you think the long-term impact of Edward Snowden is going to be? I, I Forget him, because he may just spend the rest of his life in Russia making yeah. speeches little places. I, but, but the revelations themselves in a younger generation that seems to think uh, that government secrets are, are somewhat optional in many cases. <laughs> right. Or, and, or, and loyalty is a different thing than it meant to other generations. Right. Or, yeah. or if you don't like a law, then you can just ignore it. Or if you, yeah. uh, I, I think what a lot of people misperceive about these programs is, is people, and I've talked to a lot of them, say, well, these were illegal this or illegal pro. pro and you've said many times, that's completely wrong. That's right. No, they were all legal. I know you, I, I get it. A lot of good people might say legal, but dumb or legal, but I don't right. like it. Or, or, or we're going to pass a law to make that not legal. But they were all legal. And that, frankly, that was one of the problems Snowden had. If he had gone to his supervisors, and there's no evidence that he really did, but if he had gone to them, I can picture the scenario where they say, oh, slow down here, kid. Don't worry about it. President's authorized it. Congress is in on it. In fact, the two committees are all over this program, and they actually really like it. Yeah. And the courts check it out every 60 days. 
right? I mean, and so, so Snowden's challenge was what he was pointing to wasn't illegal. He just didn't like it, which is a different criteria, okay? And, and so um, you, you, you said a few things just a couple minutes yeah, ago sorry. that I will summarize, all right? Snowden is effect, not cause. You described a whole bunch of cultural changes. He mm -hmm. didn't make those. Right. He's riding that wave. Okay. All right. He is reflective of things that are changing. He is flotsam and jetsam on this politi politico-cultural sea that is roiling and shifting and the tides are moving. All right. And, and so if anything, he may have, he, he's got an effect in terms of perhaps accelerating some conversations, distorting some other conversations and, and so on, all at great cost. All right, and we can get into that if you like. Uh, but if you want to just keep it domestic, if you want to keep it, if you just want to, yeah, here, here's, here's a barometer for you, all right? Okay. We're three years into the Snowden era now, right? What's different? Okay, what's different is NSA doesn't keep the metadata anymore, but they have access to it. Actually, Vince, they have access to more than they did under the old system just because of the way it's been set up. With regard to foreign intelligence collection, we have voluntarily restrained against ourselves from collecting against some foreign leaders, comma, until we change our mind and decide right. to start again. And, and so when you really look at all the huffing and puffing, fundamentally, not a whole lot has changed post-Snowden in terms of what it is American espionage is allowed right. to do. I, I would argue to to agree pushing back that we're having a lot more conversations about this oh, and people yeah. who wouldn't have had conversations before about it are now interested in it. Now they may be misinformed, but people are asking questions. And for us that I always bring this back to the, the concept of pop culture, right? Mm. Spy movies are tend to be pretty bad and very unrealistic. But what it does for our visitors is they come in and go did you see this movie? What do you think about it? What's right? What's right, wrong? Right. And we could actually have a conversation about intelligence. Snowden did that a lot for us also. What do you think about Snowden? Is, they're asking questions they wouldn't have asked before. Again, yeah. I freely admit, accelerated yeah. a necessary conversation. Yeah. And so, so let, let, me, let me take a knee here, all right? Uh, maybe my guys, maybe me, should have accelerated that conversation ourselves, all right? Maybe we should have seen what was coming. I anticipated it. Uh, sorry, that's too self-congratulatory, but let me tell you what happened. In 07, maybe early 08, I'm director of CIA. Carly Fiorina, apparently is making some news yeah. today. Um, Carly was the head of my civilian advisory board. And uh, I pulled Carly aside and said, look, you guys are doing great work on our IT and our recruiting, but Carly, I got, a, I got a tough one for you. I want you to take this one personally, pick whoever you want from the board, Go to whatever mountaintop you think is appropriate. Talk to the right people. Come back and answer me this. Will America be able to conduct espionage in the future inside a broader political culture that every day demands more transparency and more public accountability from every aspect of national life? And Carly went away three, four, five months. They study the problem. They come back. We're ready to talk to your boss. Walk across the eighth floor, seventh floor office space in Langley, sit in my conference room. Okay, Carly, will America be able to conduct espionage, broader political culture, transparency, accountability? She stares at me in the eye and says, eh, tough to, tough to say. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a very powerful answer, Vince. Right. I mean, she was actually saying it's quite ambiguous as to whether or not you're going to be able to do what you have historically done 
in what, frankly, everyone has historically thought you should be doing right. because of the shifting political culture. This is 07, 08. This is Snowden pre three or four years. Right. All right. So we saw this coming, and maybe we, we should have done more about it as, as this cultural sea was changing underneath us. Is this, is, would this have been a part of a, uh, a mission to educate yeah. the American public? It would have more? been. We, we, yeah. Look, I, I actually and I talk about this a lot in the book. I actually worked very hard with, to put a public face on the two agencies I had, more with NSA than CIA. CIA, when I got to it, was, was really rather battered mm-hmm. by the publicity it had just received. Right. And so <clears throat> part of my therapy there was let's get out of the news as source or subject. Okay? Um, but I did continue those dinners with, with, with the press to try to you know, create a context in which they would think about, about the agency. Maybe we should have done more. Um, maybe we should have shown a little more leg, a little more ankle in terms of what it was we were doing on America's behalf. You know, one of the, one of the really telling things about the controversial NSA programs is that Barack Obama hugged them. Mm. He hugged them like a teddy bear. All right, now here's a man who ran on fundamentally being not George Bush. Right. And when he gets briefed on these programs, you would think that every political instinct in his body would be like... Uh, Cut these things loose. So I don't think we're, we're, we're just making idle arguments here when we say, no, these things were actually useful. Because here's a president who would have been well served politically by cutting them, and he didn't. He kept them. Well, General Michael Hayden is the only person to ever been the director of both the National Security Agency and the Central Intelligence Agency, and he's the author of Playing to the Edge, American Intelligence in the Age of Terror. Thank you, General Hayden, for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thanks very much. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.